0: Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 24, How It All Fits Together. And in this episode, what I would like to do is to give a view of Scripture's storyline from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament into Jesus, through the church, and ultimately ending in the book of Revelation to more or less give us a framework and a grid by which we can understand the various parts of the Bible when we come across them. And so I'm excited for this episode to dive right in. This will really begin to unpack for us some of the ways in which the Bible has been bound. And I'm hoping to give you a freeing lens through which to read scripture so that you can best understand what God wants us to understand. So let's jump right in. what i'd like to do in this episode as well as a few of the episodes that are coming is to begin to talk about biblical interpretation how is it that we approach a certain passage of scripture and how do we know more or less what questions to ask of the passage what do we expect these passages to do in us through us and to us what is the relationship between a christian today and the teachings of the Old Testament, let's say, from the law, books like Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. How are we to understand the overall thrust of the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22? And I'm a big picture kind of person. I just naturally like to see things from the bigger view so that when I come up close and personal, I don't get lost In in the often used phrase, you don't miss the, you know, you don't miss the forest for the trees. So what's the forest of scripture, lest I get so familiar with certain parts of it, let's say, you know, maybe Ephesians or bits and pieces of Matthew, or maybe my favorite Psalm. You know, if I'm really up close and personal, which is a great place to be, I sometimes miss these parts of the Bible that don't seem necessarily to connect as well with just me. And one of the main thrusts for me doing a podcast like this is because I think first and foremost, we need to see what the Bible is, how God has chosen to communicate things about himself to the world, and then we find our place personally and individually and relationally in that system, in that understanding of God's relationship with the world and how he has set things up. And so, of course, I've given bits and pieces of this along the way. We've talked about mankind being priests. We've talked about the world and the temple being a temple and ultimately Jesus becoming that and then and the church becoming that as well and various themes that men and women throughout the centuries have tried to figure out exactly how the Bible is best understood and There are lots of them. There are lots of ways that you can try to tie this together from beginning to end. But I've found one in particular that's very, very helpful. It's very simple. It's simple to remember. It is simple to think about. And what I'd like to do is just share it with you over the next few minutes so that you have a grid, you have a framework through which you can ask additional questions and find your place in the biblical story. And it's one that I've picked up from a book called God's Big Picture – by someone named Vaughn roberts and in this book Vaughn roberts breaks down the biblical story into eight main sections and he puts all the sections under the heading of the kingdom of god and the kingdom of god is sort of a theme that Vaughn roberts has traced and i think beautifully from the opening pages of genesis all the way to the end of revelation and here's how he does so He defines the kingdom of God, which if you think about Jesus' ministry, was the number one thing he talked about, more than anything else, inviting people into life in the kingdom. And Vaughn Roberts defines the kingdom simply, and we could get into much more detail about this, but at the basic level, the kingdom is defined as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. Very simple. God's people in God's place under God's rule and therefore enjoying God's blessing. And so when you open the first few pages of Genesis chapter 1, you find out that here God has created man in his own image. He's put him in a garden. He's given him a commandment. You need to work the ground and keep it. You can eat from any tree in the garden. You simply may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God blessed them and they became fruitful and they multiplied and they filled the earth and they subdued it. And so right in the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are God's people. They're the only two people that the Bible speaks about. They are in God's place in a garden in Eden, a place where they walk with him, a place where everything is functioning precisely as it should. As they live under God's rule, Obeying his commands, work the ground and keep it, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As they live under his rule and rule themselves, they will enjoy his blessing. And this is the way that the Bible begins. It's what the book God's Big Picture calls the pattern of the kingdom. This is the pattern. It's a pattern we've seen for numerous episodes as we've walked through trying to understand what it means to be human. What it means to rule well, what it means to be fruitful and multiply, what it means to have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every living thing that creeps on the ground. We've talked about what it means to be in God's place, and we've talked about how Eden is meant to be a place that was going to spread across the the face of the earth and to bring God's presence with them. Of course, as we walk through in Genesis chapter 3, we find out that Adam and Eve, God's people, in God's place, choose not to remain under his rule and therefore they forego his blessing and are actually removed from his place. And so beginning in Genesis chapter three, you have what is called the perished kingdom. It's perished because this place and these people living under God's rule and therefore experiencing his blessing is given up the moment his people decide the best way to rule is to make that decision for ourselves. Therefore, they have taken themselves out from under God's rule, deciding to rule themselves. But the moment you take yourself out from under God's rule and decide to do it yourself, you, you forsake his blessing and you have to be removed from his place. And so that's exactly what happens at the end of Genesis chapter three. And even the last couple of episodes, we took a look at what life was like outside of the garden with Cain and his brother Abel, and then with Cain's descendant Lamech and how terribly wicked the fallenness of the human race became because of choosing to rule instead of being under God's rule. And so the biblical story continues over the next several chapters in Genesis to show this negative downward spiral culminating in the worldwide flood. And God preserving the lives of just a few in order to not wipe mankind completely off the face of the earth. Then in Genesis chapter 11, you get the Tower of Babel where what was once an individual sin of Adam and Eve now becomes sin on a global scale is the entire mankind deciding not to follow the Lord's commands. And so God scatters the people. He confuses their language. And he says, I am determined To have a people who will live in my place under my rule and will once again enjoy my blessing. In fact, I want that blessing to be extended to the ends of the earth like I had always intended. And so Genesis chapter 12 begins with the promised kingdom. God makes a promise to a man named Abram that he will make him into a great nation, a great people who can be God's people he promises him a land, a place where this worship of God and blessing of his people will take place. And he promises not only to bless them, but that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so, if you remember the themes as they begin in the beginning of Genesis, what God is saying to Abram in Genesis 12 is not some random calling that is disconnected from the story. This is very much rooted in God's determination to bless the world, but it happens through human beings. He is simply saying it is going to now happen more specifically through this man, Abram, and his descendants. Well, as you continue to read the book of Genesis, you find out very quickly that his descendants are his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is how the book of Genesis continues to follow this trajectory. It is building up, it is um, showing the blessing of God on his people who will eventually become the Israelites, not because the Israelites are more special than anybody else, but because God needs to single out someone and therefore some group of people who, when they choose to remain under his rule and enjoy his blessing, they will in fact be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so when you come to books like Exodus, and you realize that his people are enslaved and oppressed and in slavery to a very oppressive place known as Egypt, you recognize that that's not, can't possibly be part of God's plan. He's got to do something about this. He's got to liberate his people out from under the oppression and bondage. And he most clearly reveals who he is as the Lord God when he saves and rescues and oppressed people. And so he pulls the people of Israel out and he gives them his law. He gives them the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. He gives Moses commandments about how to structure a place for them to worship him and how ultimately he's going to lead them to a land that they can call their own, where they can live, where they can experience his blessing as they live under his rule. Now, most people are familiar with the Old Testament enough to know that Israel does not do a bang-up job of remaining under God's rule, and therefore, they personally do not experience His blessing, and as a consequence, neither does anybody else in the world, which is continually a problem. And yet, God does allow them to enter into the land of Canaan, where they drive out many of the inhabitants that were living there before them who had committed major evil themselves, but he brings them into a land and at times depending upon which king is seated on the throne at times the people do obey the lord they are settling under his rule and as a result they enjoy his blessing partially and so this is what the fourth phase is is often known as the partial kingdom You watch Israel live in the promised land. You watch them attempt to live under the rule of God and some kings do it and therefore lead the people to and other kings do not and therefore they lead the people exactly the opposite of the direction they ought to go. And so you see glimpses of this. You see glimpses of this most fully in David as being a man after God's own heart and yet we know that a greater and better David is one day coming who hopefully will do this better than David did and will lead the people to fully and faithfully living under God's rule and thereby enjoying His blessing. But as the people continue to waver back and forth between whether they're going to follow or whether they're not, we come face to face with the prophets. And the prophets have to enter into the scene in what should have been the king's role is to faithfully lead the people and to guide them and to... Blessed the world through the way they led the people and through the way that, that they submitted to the Lord God. The prophets had to come in and they had to prophesy both coming judgment on the people, removal from their land because they're not following the rule of God and therefore are not bringing blessing to their own people or to those in in the rest of the world. And so the prophets come in and they begin to pronounce to the people that you also are going to be removed from your place, just like Adam and Eve once were removed from theirs because you are not following the Lord. And yet, the prophets also said, the Lord is faithful. He made a promise to Abram that he was going to bless the nations through Abram's family. And he will, in fact, do it. And so the prophets had this double role. And this might be some of why it's confusing when you read the prophets. Because in one moment, in one paragraph, they will give blessings and promises of hope and restoration and fulfillment that sound like you're on cloud nine, describing nothing short of what you might imagine heaven to be like. And then in the next breath, sometime in the next sentence, bring tremendous discouraging reports of catastrophe that are coming upon the people because they are not living faithfully in this covenant relationship with God and therefore are not actually going to be experiencing these blessings themselves unless something drastic changes. And so all through the prophets, as you read them, you need to read them and understand them as the prophesied kingdom. They are prophesying about a day when God's people will live in God's place under God's rule and truly fully experience his blessing as will the rest of the inhabitants of the earth. And yet because they currently are not living in this way and do not seem to think it's a problem, great judgment is coming upon those who choose to live in a certain way or to rewrite what it looks like to live under God's rule and make up what it looks like to be receiving of his blessings. And so the prophets have a tall order and they deliver it with powerful imagery and with powerful representation of what should be expecting. they should be expecting to see as a result of their actions. Now, when Jesus comes onto the scene, if you and I don't have in our minds this idea of the kingdom of God being God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, we virtually have no context at all to understand jesus or much of what he said it's amazing to me that i was able to grow up in a context that never really talked about the kingdom of god we talked about salvation from one's sins and almost made that something different from the kingdom but jesus came in the very first words he said After being baptized by John the Baptist and coming back from the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil, the very first thing Jesus said to the crowds were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's come near. It is here. Now, Jesus wasn't just someone who preached the kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom Jesus brought, for the very first time in human history, what it looks like for God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing. And because Jesus wasn't just a preacher of the kingdom, he was the bringer of the kingdom himself, terms and themes that for so long had been focused on by Israel get reworked entirely in the person of Jesus. And I will probably have some podcasts where we will allude to this more and more because this is something that I've recognized as one of the most misunderstood characteristics of Jesus that is harming Christians in their understanding of what they should be looking for in the world and what they should expect from Jesus in the world. But that is simply this, that Jesus himself... Because of his close connection to the Father, because of his determination to live as a faithful human being and as a faithful Israelite, Jesus, who Paul refers to in Romans as the second Adam, is in fact God's people. Jesus steps in and is in fact the faithful human being, the faithful Israelite, the faithful Adam who is doing in this world the very things that God's people have always been asked to do, but have never done well. And so the God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, you see God's people most fully represented in the person of Jesus. And yet we know that in Genesis 1 and 2, Eden was this special place where God's people dwelled with him. When the Lord God calls the people of Abram's family to a special place, i.e. Canaan, you need to think of this as an expanded form of Eden. This is an expanded region where now the blessings that the Lord God once wanted to give to Adam and Eve in the garden in Eden, he now chooses to give to Abram's descendants in the land of Canaan. But the space... The geographical land, the place, if you will, has simply expanded. And the goal, again, is that it will one day expand and fill the entire world. But there are lots of instances in Jesus's ministry where people do not understand that where Jesus is, is where the presence of God is. And where the presence of God is, is what makes the space sacred. It's what made the temple special. It's what made Jerusalem special. It wasn't because there was a geographical plot of land called Israel or called Jerusalem that was therefore permanently special because God said it was special. Jerusalem and therefore the temple were special and were sacred and were God's place, if you will, because God himself chose to make his name to dwell in that space, in that place. Which means that when Jesus comes onto the scene and he tells the religious leaders to destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back up again, what Jesus is claiming quite literally is to be the place where God's blessing resides And so Jesus himself becomes not only God's people as the faithful human being and the faithful Israelite, but he also becomes God's place. He is the place where blessing is to be found. He is the place where humans can meet with God. And Jesus himself says, I do nothing on my own. I only do what the father tells me to do. As I hear, I judge And my judgment is just because I come from the father and I only do what he says. And so you see, Jesus is not only the representation of the perfect human being and the perfect Israelite. He also is the place where God's blessing resides. And he is the only one who has ever, in fact, lived perfectly under the rule of God, listening for God's every command, every desire, and then carrying it out faithfully all by himself. Which then means that the most and richest and purest blessing of God falls on the person of Jesus and whoever Jesus happens to communicate with, reach out and touch, heal, bless, and speak a kind word to. And so in the New Testament, this thrust of the kingdom of God, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing is in fact delivered and given to the world through the person of Jesus Christ. It is what von Roberts in his book calls the present kingdom. Jesus said it, the kingdom of God is at hand. The place where you can find the blessing of God as you live under his rule And as you are his people is found solely in me and all of those now who are connected to me can experience the same blessings that I am experiencing as I am here ministering to you. Jesus, of course, sends his disciples out during his ministry, giving them the authority and the power to do the same kinds of things for the world that he was doing he gives them authority to cast out demons. He gives them authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to pronounce to the world that their sins can be forgiven in Jesus. And so when the book of Acts begins and the Holy Spirit comes, the reason he does so is to empower the church to do the exact same things that Jesus once did to be a blessing to the world and to proclaim to the world that in Jesus, there is no name that is more powerful. That only in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That in Jesus, who is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, there is no force on this planet that is stronger or that can actively oppose the presence of Jesus in one's life. Therefore, repent and place faith in Jesus. And so the church's role and every letter that is written to the churches and Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts and and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and their roles as leaders in the church and as letter writers and letter senders in the church, the church's role, your role, my role, if you are a Christian right now who has found yourself attached to the person of Jesus, been invited into the kingdom of God because of Jesus and are connected to him. The church is simply the earthly manifestation of all the people who have decided that the kingdom of God is what they want and have been invited into it. And the church's main role now is to proclaim this kingdom to the world. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are his ambassadors. We are imploring people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. This is what the church is for. This is what the church does. We proclaim the kingdom and yet you and i see every single day there are parts of this kingdom that are rapidly advancing they advance in various parts of the world where where followers of jesus receive opposition they do not seem to advance as quickly in uh, moralistic cultures or in places where people do not see their daily need for something Outside of themselves to satisfy themselves. And so we do not yet see the fullest expression of a world where God's people in God's place, under His rule, enjoying His blessing, we do not yet see that fully on earth as we know that it is in heaven. This is why Jesus encourages the church and His followers to pray the Lord's Prayer Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see it happen on earth in the same way that we know it happens in heaven. We see it in part where Jesus is active. We join him there and we proclaim that victory over every sin, victory over death, victory over disease, victory over the enemy can only be found in Jesus. That's the message of the church. Which brings us all the way up to the end of the book of Jude introducing us to the book of Revelation, which Vaughn Roberts calls the perfected kingdom. This is in fact the book, despite all of the crazy interpretations that people have had of it over the years, despite the way maybe you approach the book, if you approach that book, this is simply an explanation of the way in which the Lord God, through the slain lamb and the followers of that lamb, will in fact bring the earth to its culminating conclusion where God will faithfully judge every oppressive kingdom in the world, size them up in comparison to his own perfect kingdom that was brought in by his suffering son. He encourages and calls for a faithfulness for all of the followers of Jesus who live in that kingdom to recognize that it will be a battle and a struggle to the death. But when it is all said and done, God himself will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things will have all passed away. The book of Revelation, despite its difficulty in interpretation, is aimed at one thing. It is showing how the kingdom will one day come to full perfection. And this is why it is referred to as the perfected kingdom. It is recognizing that the kingdom itself will come in all of its glory. And everyone who names the name of Jesus, who places full confidence in him, does in fact become one of God's people. As they remain close to Jesus, who is the presence of God, who is the blessing of God, they become God's people in God's place under his rule Thanks to their partnership and close fellowship with Jesus, and thereby enjoy his blessing for all eternity. That is the thrust of the biblical story from beginning to end. It is rooted in the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing. The pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, the promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, the prophesied kingdom, the present kingdom, the proclaimed kingdom, and the perfected kingdom. That's the biblical storyline. That's the biblical overview. That's a view of the story from 30,000 feet. And maybe you've heard something like that before. Maybe you haven't. But I hope that if you haven't, you will tuck this away and allow it to shape the way you approach all the various portions of the Bible. Where are we in the story? How do we know what's come before these are the questions you want to ask. If you're reading a story like David and Goliath, you are in the partial kingdom. The kingdom, in fact, once existed in Eden, it's been lost through the fall. God has promised it to Abram and his descendants, one of which is David. And we are seeing in part the working out of that kingdom. And yet the king at the time is not David. It's Saul who is fearful of, about his role as a leader of God's people in the midst of enemies. And Saul is having a very difficult time learning to place himself under the rule of God and therefore he's not experiencing the Lord's blessings. He's being threatened and taunted by an enemy giant. These are very simple ways of taking the story and saying if this is where we are in the story, these are our initial questions to begin asking as we try to make sense of our place in the story. And so that's all the time we have for this week. I Again, I am so thankful that you are listening in. I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments for me, feel free to email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I also would love it if you would get onto the podcast app that you listen to these podcasts on and, and give a rating or a review or both if you would. Um, just to let others find out about the podcast and give them a chance to find out that maybe this is something they want to tune into as well. Thank you so much for those of you that are still supporting the podcast on a monthly basis. I really appreciate your encouragement, your support. If you would like to support this podcast on a monthly basis with the $0.99 cents or 4 or 9 a month, there will be a link at the bottom of the show notes of this episode that will lead you the instructions you need to to do just that. So again, thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you next time.